So two weeks ago, I was uh, on a flight back to England, having been in China for three or four days on business. I was exhausted, as you can imagine, and having uh, seen the two good films on the way out, I was flicking through <laughs> what was left and um, saw a film called The Counselor about a lawyer who goes a little bit off the stray and, uh, a little astray. And I thought it had a great cast, and it sounded like a great John Grisham thriller. So I thought I'd watch that. Only it wasn't. In fact, it was uh, written by Cormac McCarthy, and uh, it was a somewhat darker affair. And it uh, tells the story of a lawyer the, the, who's called The Counselor, who knowingly and against advice gets involved in a one-time drug smuggling deal. Needless to say, it goes wrong, and the counsellor has to face up to the fact that he now has a bunch of rather nasty Colombians after him. Um, and it's a fairly dark film. And in desperation, he calls the leader of the cartel and asks for forgiveness and uh, to try and make the situation better. And the advice he gets back is chilling, all done on the telephone. And uh, I'll let you imagine the Colombian drug lord accent. I'm not going to attempt that. But the man says, I would urge you to see the truth of the situation you're in, counsellor. That is my advice. The world in which you seek to undo the mistakes that you made is different from the world where the mistakes were made. You are now at the crossing and you want to choose. But there is no choosing there. There's only accepting. The choosing was done a long time ago. The counsellor's woken up in a world which he cannot change, where his choices that he made some time ago have become fixed decisions, where he has no choice but to live with their consequences. And I think in many ways that's the situation that the rich man finds himself in in our passage today. Thinking he could undo the bad decisions of his life, he finds that it's too late. The choosing was done a long time ago. And just like the counsellor is helpless now to save his friends and save himself, so the rich man finds that he is helpless too. What he hadn't realised in his life was that the choices he made had eternal consequences. And the outcome of these choices for the rich man are pretty shocking. One that was no doubt very challenging to the people then, and I think is certainly challenging to us now. It certainly doesn't sit easily with us as 21st century Christians, uh, 21st century Church of England Christians in comfortable Surrey. I think we obviously ask, you know, where's the grace in this story? Where's the forgiveness? It's almost as if Jesus has unwrapped the, the, um, the Old Testament caricature of God as angry of fire and judgment, and he's put away the New Testament one of love and grace and forgiveness. But of course we know there aren't two gods. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. And we also know that all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit and is infallible. So we want to look at the passage today and try and understand what Jesus was saying then and what that means to us today. To do this, we hope we've got your Bibles open. I think we're on page 1050. And I think you'll also hopefully find a batting order uh, with that. Luke begins his gospel um, by promising his sponsor, Theophilus, that uh, he's going to draw up an orderly account. In other words, he's going to structure his book so that things link together in a way that makes sense. And I think if we want to understand what is really a very challenging passage today, we need to look at the context that Luke places it in. So, leading up to this point, Luke's told a number of well-known parables, and that culminates in the story of the prodigal son that we looked at last week. 
And if you remember, this is, it's really a story of two sons who represent the people Jesus was talking to. There's the younger son, the one who runs off and squanders the family wealth. And, it, and in the story, he's really representing the, the, uh, the sinners and tax collectors, as they, were, as they were called, those who are outside polite society, but the ones to whom Jesus is offering God's open-armed forgiveness. But I'm sure you also remember the second son. He's like the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are listening to Jesus as he speaks now. The elder son had never left home. He had always been part of the family. He was respectable. But he ends the story standing outside the feast being held for his brother's return. If you remember, his father has come out to him and is offering him reconciliation, begging him to come back in. Does he accept that offer? Does he reject it? We actually never find out in the parable. Jesus never tells us. And I think Jesus deliberately leaves that unanswered so that the Pharisees themselves are challenged to put their own answer in that place, to question themselves and say, well, what would I do? And to help guide that thinking, Jesus tells a couple of parables, including the one we are looking at today. And I think the first thing to say about this is that it is a parable. There is there is a, a discussion among some Christians about whether this is in fact a true story. But I'm convinced this is not Jesus trying to teach us about the process of what happens when we die. This is not about, he's not ta- trying to show us what heaven is like or what hell is like or, and, and how it all happens. In fact, it's not even his story. Uh, the, first, uh, the first part of the parable follows a very familiar path used by numerous Egyptian and Jewish folktales at the time. But as always happens when Jesus does something like that, he takes the story and then turns it on its head. And the ending is very different to the traditional folktales. The parable talks about a rich man. He wears fine clothes. He eats well. He lives in luxury. And next to his house lives a beggar who's called Lazarus, which means God has helped. It must have been a somewhat ironic name throughout his life. He has a life of utter poverty. He's longing for scraps from the rich man's table. He's no doubt in considerable pain. He's covered in sores and so ignored and trampled on that only the dogs pay him any attention. The two men lived in completely different worlds and yet they lived right next to each other. And then they both die. And they find themselves in very different futures. Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Literally, it actually means to Abraham's bosom. Um, it's rather flowery language, but reflects a sort of language used, used at the time. A lot of uh, ancient Hebrew tombs uh, carry the inscription, asleep in the bosom of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think Jesus deliberately uses that language because it brings to mind the concept of feasting, uh, where the valued guest, the, the number one guest, would often recline at the host's side, to rest himself, as it were, on the host's bosom. Um, as a disciple, you see that at the Last Supper, where the disciple John is is in exactly that position next to Jesus. And in Matthew eight, uh, Jesus talks about heaven as a great feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, having longed for the scraps from the rich man's table, Lazarus is now pride of place at the most wonderful feast you could imagine. The rich man, however, has found himself in a somewhat different place. And he is now in torment. And it's almost made worse by the fact he can look and see in the distance Lazarus 
and Abraham next to him, feasting and enjoying themselves. The positions of the rich man and Lazarus have been completely reversed. They're still in very different worlds, but this time it's Lazarus who is in comfort and the rich man in torment. And what would you guess? For the first time in this story, the rich man seems to take notice of Lazarus. He calls out, and he calls out to Abraham next to him and asks for three things. And he gets three rather clear and not particularly encouraging answers. In verse 24, he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. And Abraham's response is is gentle in tone, but it's firm and unyielding. He says in verse 25, Son, remember, in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. The man's effectively asking Abraham to undo the past. To, he's saying, ignore what I've done. Have pity on me. But Abraham answer, Abraham's answer seems to be very clear. He says, you made your own choices in life. You got what you wanted. You relied on yourself and no one else. You had it then, and you can't have it now. Well, if the past can't be changed, can the present? The rich man says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Send Lazarus to kind of ease me, ease my suffering now. It's interesting, having noticed Lazarus, he he still seems to think that uh, Lazarus is his servant and just to be sent there to help him. But Abraham responds that there is an unbreachable chasm between them. And even if Lazarus wanted to help, he couldn't. It says in verse 26, Those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So the rich man, he can't change his past and he can't change his present. So finally, he thinks about somebody else. Now, he doesn't stretch too far. He gets as far as his five brothers. But he does think about them. He says, could Abraham at least send Lazarus to warn them? Again, send Lazarus, you notice. But once again... The answer is strong and it's unyielding. Abraham says, they've had enough warnings. They've had their encouragements already. They already have Moses and the prophets to listen to. And just to be clear, Moses and the prophets aren't a 1970s rock band in the same ilk as Derek and the Dominoes and Martha and the Muffins. Uh, Moses and the prophets is the Bible. Uh, It's our current Old Testament, if you like. And Abraham says in verse 31 that if they haven't paid attention to that already, then they're not even going to be convinced if someone raises from the dead. So there you go. That's the passage for today. It's not exactly the most jolly sermon. and But there are three firm messages, and I want to spend the rest of our time looking at each of them in turn and seeing what we can learn from them. The first thing to say is that our choices today matter. If I asked you the question, why did the rich man and Lazarus end up where they were, what would you say? I think we don't, we don't hear that much about Lazarus, and I don't really think the parable is about him. But you know, there's certainly nothing to say he did anything wrong, but there's not a lot to say he did anything that much right either. All we know about Lazarus is that he, on earth he received bad things, but now he is comforted. We therefore know that at least he has received God's mercy and his grace and he's now in heaven. But why didn't the rich man? It would appear he had some sort of faith. I mean, there aren't many clues about how he lived his life. 
But from the information we are given, we have to assume that he is where he is because of what he did or what he didn't do. He did make sure he kept all the good things to himself. And he did not help Lazarus. I think the first thing to say about this is this isn't about simply being rich. Abraham himself was, was very rich, so the, the amount of money you have is not the issue. But I think there is something that Jesus is saying here about what we do with our riches what, or what we do with our life in general. Let's go back to the context of the story. We've got uh, the context of the parable of the lost sons and the listeners to the story, the Pharisees. Because I, th- I think... I think when we look at them, the Pharisees, the older brother in the parable of the lost sons and the rich man are all very similar. They're all nominally respectable. They believe they've earned that respect through what they do, through their behaviour. But I think Jesus is telling us the opposite is true. He's saying they may think they are respectable, they may think they are safe, but actually they're all lost. They are all out, still outside the party, outside the feast. Remember, the eldest son is left standing outside looking in at the feast for his brother. The rich man is stuck in in Hades, in hell, looking across the chasm at the feasting Lazarus. They both thought they were safe. They both thought they were in control of their lives. They thought they knew where they were going, that they could rely on that. But they weren't. You see, the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's self-reliance. It's confidence in one's own ability to control events rather than placing that confidence in God. Trust in yourself. You see, faith, love, relationship all involve trust. But if you've chosen to trust yourself, then I think Jesus is saying, where's the room for trusting God? The rich man placed his confidence in himself, in the things he could provide for himself. And in his bubble of self-reliance, his heart was closed. He didn't notice or didn't care about the poor man sitting at his gate. He focused only on looking after himself and on no one else. And what about you? Or more importantly, what about me, for me? That's the question I think I need to ask myself and each of us need to ask ourselves. Where do we place our reliance? Because if I'm honest, I'm a bit like the rich man. I spend a good chunk of my time making sure that I'm safe, that I'm secure. I don't want to rely on other people. I want to be sorted. And to a certain extent, that's fine. But if I look at how my relationship with God varies with that, then I think I have a challenge. And if I'm honest, the amount of time I spend talking to God and trying to bring God into what I'm doing in the day it's pretty dependent on whether it's a good day or a bad day. When times are dark, and I know I can't do it myself, I'm very good. I spend my time praying. I ask God to come in, and I say, Lord, lead me. I can't do this. I need your help and support. I need to rely on you. But it's frightening how easily I lapse into self-reliance the moment I think I'm in control. The moment the pressure is off, I begin to behave just like the rich man. The second request the rich man makes is in verse 24. He says to Abraham, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. He seems to be saying, if I can't change my absolute position, can I at least be a little bit more comfortable where I am? 
But Abraham tells him that even if Lazarus wanted to help, he couldn't. And as we said, because between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone else cross over from there to us. To go back to our drug baron, there is no choosing there, only accepting. The choosing was done a long time ago. Jesus is saying very clearly that the choices we make on earth do not just impact our lives here, but they have an, inter- they have an eternal implication. You know, that's already clear, really, from, from a lot of other parables, the, the parables that Jesus has told, where he's talking in a positive way about how we can uh, change our lives and become close to God and, and, and gain, and gain a, uh, a new life with him. But at some stage he's saying that there's a point, and in this parable he's saying really very clearly, there's a point though where, we can, where it would be too late. There's a point when our decisions we've made in our life will stand. There'll be no going back. There'll be no crossing the chasm. Going back to the story again of the two lost sons. For each one, the father goes out to them, waiting for each son to return to him with his arms open wide in love and forgiveness. But each son has to accept that forgiveness. He has to engage in relationship. And Jesus, I think, is saying, he's saying to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, if you want to be part of that celebration feast, if you want to be part of the family, you need to accept this offer. We need to accept this offer. But there is only a limited amount of time to do this. You see, the Father's love and acceptance won't change. It will always be patient. He is infinite. He is unending. But our lives are finite and will end. And we need to make a decision before that point. We don't know when that will be, but at that point, there will be no turning back. There will be no further choices. We will have made our choice on how we wanted to live our lives, on where we placed our reliance. And that has eternal consequences. Now, that's a pretty hard message, I think. It's, it's, but it's an important message. It's not one really we often talk about because it makes us a bit uncomfortable. But the title of today's talk is, is Eternal Decisions. And I think Jesus is reminding us that we need to step out of the busyness of the day. We need to step out of the busyness of our own self-reliant bubbles and find the time to decide our futures. We always think there'll be time tomorrow. But the one thing I learn as I get older is that there never is. You know, when I was at school, I thought, well, once I'm through and done my... Uh, GC, well, it wasn't GCSEs in my day. Uh, O-levels and A-levels, it'll get easier, I'll have more time. Then at university, well, there's far too much time socialising to, to uh, have time to think. You start your career, and once I've got settled in my career, I've got those first few years sorted, there'll be more time. Maybe you then get married, and then you've just got to sort out your, your marriage first and get settled in that. Then you have babies. Well, nothing is busier than two young babies, except for when they go to school or when they reach teenage years. And that's where I've got to now, but I'm sure that it's not going to change. And I think Jesus is saying to us, don't put things off. There are eternal decisions, eternal choices that will change your relationship with God today and will change your relationship with God forever. And don't let the busyness of today, the drive for self-reliance, crowd these out. Back to the parable. The rich man has found out that he can't change his past and he can't change his future. 
But then for the, for the first time in the story, as we saw earlier, he finally thinks of someone else. He thinks of his brothers. And he says, if this is so important to make these decisions, shouldn't Abraham send Lazarus as a special messenger to warn them? Surely that's the least he can do. Now, in the folktales of the time, that's exactly what happened. Someone is sent to warn the living. But Jesus turns it on his head and he says, no. He says through Abraham that the rich man's brothers are as blind as him. They too have made their choices and nothing will convince them otherwise. Just like the rich man, they've not really listened to what the Bible is telling them. Because if they had, they would have acted, they would have chosen, they would have changed. And even if someone did rise from the dead to bring them that message, they would not listen. The message to the Pharisees, I think, is clear. Just like the rich man and his brothers, they've not listened to what God is saying in the, in the Bible. They've not let it touch their hearts. How could they if they continue to act as they do? If they continue to think that the rules were more important than the relationship? If they continue to exist in their bubbles of self-reliance, trusting themselves and not trusting God, with no room for relationship, for faith? for love, for grace. And if they couldn't look out and recognise Jesus as he stood there talking to them, how would they be impacted if he were to rise from the dead? Similarly for us, I think this parable tells us that we have everything we need to make a decision to follow Jesus. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has has set eternity in the hearts of men. He's given us creation. He's given us the Bible. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He has even sent someone to rise from the dead for us. If we can only step out of our self-reliance, lift our eyes from ourselves, then the evidence is all around us of a God who loves us, who cares for us, who has died for us. What kind of life do you want? What kind of life do I want? Do I want a life reliant on self, trusting self? Or a life where I realise to place my trust in God? A life looking out, a life looking to him. Now, if you've never made that decision and you're here tonight, then I encourage you with all of my heart to consider it. Don't put it off any longer. Come and talk to me, come and talk to any member of the team here and explore the options. If you have already made that decision, then I think that parable challenges us about, still challenges us about where we place our reliance. Do we lapse into a religion like the Pharisees that's based on rules and self and not relationship? Rather than relying on our money, rather than fixing our own ambitions for ourselves, rather than trying to control our time, our friendships, our attitudes. Why don't we choose now to put our trust in God in all areas of our lives? Shortly we're going to turn to communion. And I think that of of all things, this is a sign really of our ultimate reliance on God. It's a sign that says, without grace, without God's sacrifice, we would be nowhere. He has given everything for us and all we have to do is rely on him and accept that.
And I'd recommend that each one of us to use that time quiet and the week ahead to consciously identify those areas of our lives where we still rely on ourselves, where we don't turn God in, and to place those, place those parts of our lives into his hands and to say, God, you take control and you make the difference in my life today that will make the difference in my life eternally. Amen.